Drunk Dish contains adult language that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Drunk Dish, where three delicious dishes explore food history and get pickled in the process. Uh, this is episode six of season two, and in this episode, we'll be discussing a domestic science elevating the art of home cooking. Yay! Mm-hmm. An episode that's Woo. like probably actually only going to be about food mostly. Yeah, that's like yep. I saw this on the in the outline, and I was like, yes, this yep. and the next one. I was like, yep. perfect. <laughs> Very excited. Oh, I'm Melissa. I'm Kate. <laughs> I'm Amy. <laughs> and we're all sick. Mm-hmm. I seem the least sick out of everybody. I think I've gotten over mine mostly. But this is the best anyway. I've felt for a week. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely. Yeah. I'm just in yeah. grandma mode. I'm wrapped in an afghan. I'm cozy. I've got my cough drops. Respectable. Yeah. Got some Ricola. Where's your mm-hmm. sherry? You don't have your what? little bottle of your little sherry cup of sherry. That's what grandma's oh, drink. No. Oh my god! Can I get? I mean, not I, my grandma, but can I sidetrack already? <laughs> sidebar already. Um, sidebar, sure. sidebar already. Can't even remember what we say. Uh, <laughs> this might be the earliest sidebar we've ever had. So my ninety-year-old grandmother is living with us. Yeah, we're taking care of her. Um, she's going through like early stages of like dementia, so. Some days she has great days. Some days like she cannot remember anything. Lately, it's been a real struggle to get her to eat. Oh. Um, usually, I can convince her by telling her that we're going to get in trouble from my mom if we don't <laughs> eat. <laughs> Treat them like a, a kid. <clears throat> yep. It works. Yep. Um, or if I just say it's time to eat and put food in front of her, normally she'll be like, "I'm not hungry," and then immediately eat the ham sandwich that I put down. Okay. Um, but yesterday she like was getting mad at me. Because I was like not letting it go. I was like, you need to eat lunch. And she's like, I don't want lunch, but I'll take a snifter. And I was like, <laughs> uh, what the fuck yeah. is a snifter? I had to look it up. Oh, you didn't want to like, it's like a brandy glass, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And I was like, my man, I will totally pour you a glass of booze, but you need to eat a sandwich. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't get the booze without the sandwich. Yeah. 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 And Did then she got sandwich? mad at me. And stormed oh. off and went upstairs. Oh, all right. Well. She has her own bottle up there and her own sniff. Probably. So. Probably. <laughs> and then the day before, we had a friend, uh, like, Mamea sitting for us, like, watching her. And she sn- Mamea snuck a beer. She got up, went to the fridge, got herself a beer. Why did um, she got to friend- sneak it? Just let her have a beer. Yeah, we do. We do just let her have a beer whenever yeah, she, she wants. She, <laughs> she thought she needed to sneak it, and then my friend saw her, and she was like, "Shh, don't tell anyone." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when I got home, I said, "My friend told me what you did, my man," and she was like, "She told me she wouldn't tell anyone." She got very mad. Oh. Mm-hmm. So Broke. it's been adorable and fun, but ba- Broke that very bond. booze centered. <laughs> Encounters. I mean, 90. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you do whatever you want at that point. Yeah. Just, right. Yeah. Just let for it sure. go, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Yep. 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 All right. Well, now that we've uh, sidebarred 
and introduced ourselves. Uh, every episode, Kate likes to ask us one food-related question. Qu- qu- question. Mm-hmm. Kate, what is our question? So our question is going to be uh, uh, an audible. I'm just going to change it up right now because uh, since well, we didn't all... know what it was before. Well, right. So I did I did it in my brain. I'm going to save that <laughs> oh, okay. for someplace else. Uh, so... Since we're all sick, <laughs> I don't think we've ever really discussed what our if we have like a sick, um, like comfort food or something that we immediately think of when when we're sickly. That is like I either need that because it's going to make me feel better in my soul, or I need that because it's going to make me feel better in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything specific that you turn to? Yeah, when you're not Definitely. feeling well. No, I don't really. Think so. Amy, Amy, Amy said yes, so she's interesting. Yeah. Normally, when I don't feel good, I don't want anything. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. Yep. I just want to sleep. Sleeping does sleeping count? <laughs> I mean, I suppose. I mean, I want to do that all the time, anyways. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, sleeping. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll think some more. But I don't. I don't. I don't think I have anything. I like really acidic and really salty foods when okay. I'm sick. So like if I have like a cold, an ideal breakfast would be like uh like really fluffy salted peppered eggs with bacon on top of toast, like an open face egg sandwich essentially with a glass of orange juice. Okay. I love the way orange juice feels in my throat when it's sore. Mm-hmm. And then for lunch, Bacon again, bacon grilled cheese sandwich with chicken noodle soup. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like Johnny Cake, um, which is like corn cake. Oh, okay. Um, or corn muffins mm-hmm. with chicken noodle soup to dip in the soup. I like that that's way better com- than soup crackers. Whoa, that's a combo that I haven't ever considered before. I like mm, that. So good. It's Ooh, so good. Yeah. Now, are you a sweet cornbread kind of person, like corn muffin person, or a like less sweet? Um, not super sweet, but there's always mm-hmm. some sweetness. Yeah. And when you're using like cornmeal. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. Oh, I like that. That's that's yeah, that's a good combo. All right. Yeah. So that's my go to. How about Kate? Do you have one? Um, Chicken soup also is for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I made some chicken soup this week because I needed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, And. But like at least this and I think you're right. I think it depends what what kind of sick too, right? Like mm-hmm. if it's like head cold stuff, then yeah, like not real hungry, but the the soothingness of the soup I think is there and just like that. Like <laughs> you being in grandma mode, that's what kind of it feels like to me. Like uh and then <laughs> I've been drinking uh just bonkers amount of tea with lemon and honey just to try to you know get this and again sort of soothing and um try to try to oh yeah i guess i guess tea i drink a yeah i definitely drink a lot of hot tea like a lot more than normal when i'm sick so maybe that if and i have some sort of like stomach bug it's always the like flat ginger ale yeah Makes me feel like my mama's taking care of me. She's Aww. getting, she's stirring it to get all the bubbles out, and then <laughs> yeah, it I to think me. 
I think that that is a huge part of it. Like my, you know, when I would, when I would stay home from school, if I was sick, I don't know. Uh, I, my grandmother would, <laughs> my grandmother would make me white rice, like, and she'd so throw so much curry powder on it. Like it was this like amazing thing. And now I think about it and I'm just like, oh, she was just trying to get like the curry, like the curry yeah. powder in there to try yeah. to like, like burn stuff out. And I guess the white rice was the, was the vessel. And I never, ever <laughs> considered it like when I was a kid, but instead of I, just force feeding you a spoonful of curry powder. Exactly. It's, the song is not a spoonful of curry makes the medicine go well, down. My ex stepdad would do a spoonful of horseradish. Mm. Okay. That's one of okay. the reasons why I hate horseradish so much. Horse, I mean, horseradish is disgusting. That is. Yeah. Besides is the fact that it's also disgusting, but I have, an, I think an unnatural level of hatred for it for that reason. Fair. That's I mean, fair. real fair. Yeah. <clears throat> disgusting. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, Jake has a lot of spicy foods when he's sick. I think, cause mm-hmm. I think like we're kind of naturally drawn to like what's going to make us feel better. So like, like orange juice or tea with like lemon in it, like yeah. that has vitamin C, which help boost our mm-hmm. immune system. Ginger is really a really good like cold remedy too. Yeah. And settles your stomach. It helps with your digestion. So like all of the the ingredients in what we're talking about is like very like broth. Like that's all like we've been doing that as a species for hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years. Right. Right. So I think there's kind of like some proven medicinal qualities in that that we might not even yeah. be thinking about. And then there's that comfort thing too with like it's what our moms did or our grandmas did or, you know, so like it brings us back to that like warm cared for feeling too. Abs- yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's I think that. That there's both that whole, you know, is it for your soul or is it for your body? So, mm-hmm. and I say soul like purely tongue and cheeky, but you well, know, now, what I mean. yeah, but now all <clears throat> I can think about is chicken soup for the soul. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I was sorry, obsessed but. with those when I was a teenager. Oh, that's right. So much. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I had a lot of orange juice too. But I I water it down because it's too sweet for me. Yeah, well, that's good because there's there's like actually so much sugar in orange in modern American orange yeah, juice. Yeah, it's too it sweet. Can, it can actually turn a head cold into a sinus infection or um, a throat infection. Like you can, you're more likely to get strep because the sugar will actually feed like a bacterial infection, like a secondary infection. So if you have a virus and you're more mucusy. The mucus can hold on to bacteria. And then if you're drinking and consuming a lot of sugar, it makes the sugar, the bacteria grow. So it it can compel <sighs> your body to develop a secondary infection on top of a cold. Wow. But vitamin C is great. The sugar is not. <laughs> the That's really funny. I, I, yeah, right. <laughs> I was uh, I, I had a grapefruit for the first time in like. Four years <laughs> the other day because mm. I was just like, what do I want? I think I want a grapefruit. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder if that was what it was like. Sort of, I knew Body I didn't was want like, orange I juice. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, I don't want orange juice, but mm, yeah, this sounds right. That's citrus, yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure. Nice, very cool. All right. Well, now that we're all on the mend, <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, what are we drinking? <laughs> uh. Yeah, so I am participating in Dry January, which Roll Your mm-hmm. Eyes Grown, which we'll talk about why I say Roll Your Eyes Grown in a little bit. Or uh, cheer. But 
So <laughs> I have a mocktail. Nice. That I made up a little like mix um, that kind of resembles like a nice, fun, fruity, like tiki cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I have is a jalapeno lime pineapple soda. Um, that sounds good. So this is a batch. Yeah, it yeah it's pretty good. Um, it, it ended up coming out a lot like when I made tapache for the show, which was that fermented ginger uh, jalapeno pineapple beverage mm-hmm. that I made from fresh pineapples. This is just like from pineapple juice. So didn't need to sit in the fridge for, you know, like three weeks or whatever uh, and get all fermenty. But um, it is a batch recipe. So it it makes about 12. I obviously didn't make that much. I like cut it in half. Um, but it stays pretty good in the fridge. So I had, I just had like a deli container full of it in the fridge, um, since the last time we were supposed to record, um, <laughs> it's still fine. I'm not really supposed to keep it in the fridge for that long, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I made tapache and that thing was in the fridge for like weeks. Um, <laughs> this has only been like a week, but anyway, so real quick, you we'll might, talk about you the might recipe. not still be doing dry January though. <laughs> No, it's fine. It's not fermented. A little bit's okay. Um, So for this, um, what I did was we had um, a tablespoon of pink peppercorns, uh, one lime, two small jalapenos, three cups. It says fresh pineapple juice. I didn't use fresh pineapple juice because that like will make my mouth just one giant ulcer. So I just use regular like canned pineapple juice, Um, half cup of sugar, pinch of kosher salt, and then nine cups of club soda divided because again it's like a batch cocktail and then kind of whatever bitters you have around i i just grabbed a bottle of cherry bitters that i had that made it much more like fruit punchy Hmm. um which is good um but really simple all you're gonna do is crush the peppercorns with like a mortar and pestle or whatever however you choose to crush them um you're gonna remove the zest from the line and like uh, from the lime and like wide strips um Obviously, making sure you don't get any of the white, bitter, pithy stuff. Um, And then you're going to put the lime peel in a medium bowl, add the peppercorns, add one of the sliced jalapenos, the pineapple juice, sugar, and salt until stir and stir until most of the sugar is dissolved. And then transfer it to a one quart jar or an airtight container. And then you're going to cover and chill it for eight to 12 hours. And then um, when you're ready to serve, you're going to strain it, obviously, to get out like all the solids and stuff. Um, and then to make one drink, you're going to mix a quarter cup of the juice, juice of half a lime, um, three cu- a three quarter cup of club soda. Um, taste it to see if you want it to be like any sweeter. You can add more juice if you want it to be sweeter or whatever. Adjust it. Um, this is when you would add in the um, any sort of bitters that you have. So I just did two dashes of cherry bitters. Um, pour into an ice filled glass, garnish with a lime wedge and some rings of jalapeno. Um, I also threw some red pepper flakes on top when I first made it, which was a nice little like kick. Uh, and then, like I said, everything I read online said juice can be infused and strained three days ahead, cover and chill. This thing's like a week and a half old. (laughs) It's fine. I think, yeah, I think that's, that should be fine for like a month. It's delicious. It's really good. It sounds delicious. I can try and make this. And I have it in my big cup. Yeah, it's good. Um, and like I said, it, t- it tastes almost exactly like when I made tapache, um, except it's not actually fermented. I think it's mostly from the like jalapenos. That jalapeno mm. flavor is really strong. I um, love so jalapeno for, in drinks. 
I'm sorry. Yes. I just like, no. That's fine. I've like the best apple cider I've ever had was jalapeno apple cider. Like the Ooh. best cocktail I've ever had that was like had that white. What was it like? White country or what oh, was yeah. that? The it's, jalapeno cider. It's based in Rollinsford. The company name. Uh, it was so company. good. It was. Yeah, we'll have to really find good. out what it is and maybe, if I can remember, share it on social media. No promises, listeners. I am <laughs> social <fake>. media. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> um, but yeah, that stuff was really good. I remember you brought me some of that. Mm-hmm. And it was delicious. There, you had a couple other kinds too, but the jalapeno one is the one I remember. So, obviously, I don't really have any history for the drink, but I do have a history on dry January. Um, which is actually older than we would have thought, I think. I think we would have thought. I thought we thought we thunk. Maybe. Yeah. Um but you said. so <laughs> so we're gonna talk about kind of like the modern day uh dry January and its uh inception and like its current form. We're also gonna talk a little bit about the historical context. And then um we're gonna move on to kind of its like impact and benefits and then some criticisms about it. Um, cause I actually read a lot of criticisms online when I was doing research. Uh, I was telling Greg today, this is like the most research I've done in a long while. <laughs> like weird. Like I, like actually, like I had more than like two sources and like Wikipedia is on there, but like, I didn't really use it. I just used it for some st- 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 statistics. statistics. Uh-huh. Yep. Statistics. <laughs> I'm not even drinking. What's my excuse? I have a cold. That's my excuse. Yeah, cold brain. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even though I'm pretty much over it anyways. So, uh, the modern day dry January was created in 2013 by alcohol change UK. Um, the campaign was used as a fundraising tool to encourage sobriety in the first month of the year. This of course fit perfectly as consumers attempt to spend less and consume less during this time. I mean, it's everything slow now. Like the, uh, the cafe business has gone way down because like, People are trying to consume less calories. People are trying to spend less money. Um, So like they're either skipping their trip to the cafe or they're going to the cafe and they're not getting like, they're just getting a coffee. They're not getting like all the add-ons and a breakfast sandwich and like all this stuff because people are trying to kind of pull back from kind of like the decadence of the holidays, Mm -hmm. which I mean, makes sense. Um, Once dry January was established, it was popularized by Club Soda in Great Britain. Club Soda is an alcohol awareness group with over 30,000 members. Um, They host a mindful drinking festival annually in January at London's Truman Brewery, which is kind of hilarious to me, but whatever, to raise awareness for irresponsible drinking habits. So the focus of both dry January and of these organizations isn't for people that have dependencies on alcohol. It's more for just like irresponsible drinking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people that drink a little too much or you go a little overboard when they do get drunk or whatever, you know what I mean? Like blackout every now and then, although a lot of people would argue that that is a dependency, but we won't get into that. Yep. Um, <laughs> Club Soda runs events throughout the year, but the Mindful Drinking Festival in January is their largest of the year and it mainly promotes dry January. Um, As with anything, the campaign quickly made it over to the U.S. where it's more popular than ever. Uh, A poll conducted from January 4th to 5th in 2021 with 2,200 adults found that 13% of American 
respondents were participating in dry January. This compared with 11% the previous years. 79% attributed the decision to being healthier, while 72% were trying to drink less alcohol in general. Um, 63% said they wanted to reset their drinking. And 49% said they were drinking too much during the COVID-19 pandemic, which... Same. Yep. (laughs) Very, very same. And that was too, that was like one of my main reasons for doing dry January. It's just like after December, I just felt like shit. Mm. And I mean, I didn't like go nuts. Like I never got like crazy drunk or anything, but I still drank like a fair amount. And I was just obviously I already have like some like digestion and like food issues. But I have noticed in January, I've been like way less bloated, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I did just have a week long cold, so I can't say that I've been sick less in January. <laughs> but I do gen, gen, generally feel like a difference, yeah, um, which is nice. Um, so like I said before, so that started in 2013, but um, kind of this idea of dry January is much older than that. Um, so besides the like temperance and prohibition movements, um, there is one pre-dry, oh my God, I can't talk, pre-dry January. That's a tongue twister. Uh, event that is of no, and it outdates the modern movement by over 80 years. Um, so I do not have, know how to say this. I could not find a pronunciation on it. It's Ratis Tamiku or Ratis Januar, um, which is Finnish essentially for, mm-hmm. I've seen it both translated as dry January or sober January. Um, sober January seems to be the more common phrase um and that was launched by the finnish government in january of 1942 um as a propaganda blitz for the second world war so the campaign was intended to help prevent the rise of dependency which finland kind of has a history of finland and alcohol have a very kind of complicated and destructive history although i Mm. feel like you could argue that in most cultures um the finland government noticed it though (laughs) Yes, Finland has had many campaigns to try and curb the amount of drinking that their citizens participate in. I can only assume it's because it's like real cold. Um, and is remote. Finland real cold? Uh, and remote. Yeah. But Dark. it's all that fucking salty licorice they eat. I don't know. They need, they need the booze. <laughs> salty licorice, have some, salty by fish, the way, that I, salty. Sidebar that I need you guys to try. It's called um, Salmiak. I don't have a little box Were we talking here. about this before or was I talking about this to someone else? I don't know. We oh. saw Emmy made try it mm-hmm. and it is salted licorice candy. Mm-hmm. And I bought some because I was just so intrigued, even though I, I already hate licorice. Like, yes, I'm same. not yeah. a licorice gal. I hate it. But I got it and it comes in like the cutest little boxes. Like the boxes are adorable. They look like little like cigarette packs. They're really cute. And there were these really tiny candies. So I, Greg and I tried them. Greg didn't mind it, honestly, mm-hmm. um, but it says like strong licorice flavor with like a hint of or a note of salt or salty notes is what it says. When I tell you that I put this thing in my mouth, it was like an entire mouthful of like seawater. Oh. Like it was so salty. So like I got by that and then there was like a little bit of licorice coming in. I'm like, oh, this isn't so bad. And then it was just like you were getting like punched in the face by licorice and I ended up having to spit it out. Uh, Because I thought it was disgusting. But I brought them up to my mom because my mom loves black licorice and I didn't tell her. So she put in her (laughs) mouth just expecting licorice and she like spit the thing like across the room. (laughs) That's great. 
Oh. <laughs> she was so surprised. She ended up like putting it back in her mouth. And once she got past the salt, she said it was really good because it's very strong licorice mm-hmm. flavor. But apparently it's like huge over there in like Switzerland, oh. Sweden, Norway, Finland. Like they all love that shit. Anyway, sorry. What was I talking about? Oh, right. Finland in 1942. <laughs> so the campaign was intended to help prevent the rise of dependency, um, which had happened as a result of the traumatic events of the war, of course. Um, mm-hmm. As with many countries at the time, people at home needed to do their bit to help the war effort. Beer and liquor production used grains that could be better served in food production uh, in mm-hmm. case supply lines and stockpiles are damaged. And many countries ha- handled this dilemma through rations. Um, so Finland essentially did the same thing and saw this as an opportunity um, to both kind of sober up their uh, population and also save resources that they needed. Um, Finland also had a problem of drunk soldiers on the front lines because they would send booze to the soldiers, which we've heard about before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also had a problem of drunk workers at home. Um, so the campaign was seen as a way to keep the Finnish population happy, healthy, and essentially ready for anything. Um, from what I read, it, it didn't go real well, um, and they didn't do it the next year. But that that's the first time we see anything like the modern, like, dry January taking place is in Finland in 1942. Um, so now we move to today and kind of some of the impacts, some of the benefits, and some critics. There's, like... A lot in here, and I'll say when I get to it that I pulled directly from an Eater article um, because they used a lot of quotes in it. So I just pulled the whole thing because mm-hmm. I wasn't going to quote, quote. Well, I guess I did quote quotes, but you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Um, but so uh, in 2018, the team at University of Sussex uh, surveys two, surveyed 2,000 people in the UK planning on participating in the challenge. They then re-surveyed 1,715 of those people in the first week of February and 816 challenge participants in August. What they found was that the month-long dry spell had lasting effects. The days per week respondent strength dropped from an average of 4.3 to 3.3 days. The amount of alcohol they drank per day also dropped from 8.6 to 7.1 units, um, which is about a half a glass of wine. Um, They also reported getting really drunk less often, just 2.1 days per month versus 3.4 days before dry January. Um, So like kind of good, obviously good benefits because um, one of the, I don't know if I put that here, but one of the critiques about it is that people often tend to drink more um when they come off of dry january um but from all the research i saw that wasn't the case so i don't think that's true um so this is what's directly from eater um and this is more about the like criticism and kind of eye rolling and groaning that people get when someone says that they're participating in dry january um because there's always like backlash when something kind of gets into like pop culture, like the common lexicon becomes a really popular thing. Even if it's something that's good, you know, you're always going to have the people yeah. who are like, oh, whatever. Um, so <laughs> with writers like the Alls Jim Barrel begging people to shut up about it, Grub Street asked that participants stop bragging and argued that it's about optics rather than real behavioral correction. Vice wrote that it wasn't all that impressive impressive anyway any idiot can stop drinking for four weeks when they can count down the days from 31 to zero and as kate taylor at business insider said the practice has become insufferable largely because of the publicness of it all 
dryuary is not for people wishing to better their lives. It's for people who wish to publicly better their lives and inadvertently shame those who continue to indulge in the semi-frequent glass of wine. Um, and then a note from the author of this article said that inadvertently is doing a lot of work here. <laughs> yeah. Um, because no one's doing that. Yeah. Uh, and then just a quick note for me, whatever the complaint shitting on people for any form of sobriety is like rude. Yeah. Like, yeah. fuck you. Like, I get if someone's being annoying, they're bringing it up all the time. But like at the cafe, um, one of my friends and I were planning like a date night or whatever. And she's like, oh, let's do cocktails. And I was like, oh, well, not this month because I'm doing dry January. And everybody in the cafe gave me like a high five and was like, cool. And then we never talked about it again. Right. Yeah. Like it's it like, wasn't they weren't like, oh, it was just like I was just telling her, hey, we can't go out for cocktails because I'm not drinking this month. Yeah. I feel like that's a self-imposed. I feel like if you are like all rolly of your eyes, then yeah. you're that's a you thing. That's not yeah. a the person that's choosing to just sort of cleanse for a month. Like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah. that's like a healthy practice to do to like check in with yourself and like. For any substance, like mm -hmm. whether if you have a hard time doing it, like if you have a hard time making it the full month, mm -hmm. then, yeah, you need to inspect more your relationship with alcohol. Like, yeah, me like, you know, there's been times where like, yeah, I've wanted to chill out with like a glass of wine or anything, but I've never once been like, I need to have a drink. Right. right. Like, I'm not like jonesing for it. You know what I mean? I'm not like, uh and just um, a check-in to do with yourself, like about anything. It doesn't even have to be about booze. It could be about like your guilty sugar. pleasure food or yeah. or weed or whatever, caffeine. Mm -hmm. Like it could be about anything just to mm -hmm. like do that gut check and be like, hey, is this helping me or is it like more of a comfort thing or like, you know. Well, it's a lot harder to give up caffeine. I'll tell you what. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am addicted. Yeah, no, I would definitely have some physical withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that if if the people that are in your life are like giving you shit because you're trying to, I don't know, you know, just like uh, like you were saying, me just sort of inspect what's what's going on with your with yourself, then mm -hmm. or like with your checkbook or you know with your wallet, yeah. it's expensive to go out for drinks. So that's the other thing. Like if you're Am I yelling? I feel like I'm yelling at you. You're not. You're not. I don't think so. No. You are not, not yelling, at all. Um, <laughs> Wow. But like, it, it could be for any number of reasons, you know? It could just be like, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm starting the, like a whole, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And anybody that's in your life that cares about you, that's going to be like, oh, we can't go out for cocktails. Well, then you're insufferable. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm not the insufferable one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like I didn't I, like canceling social plans because I'm not drinking this month. I'm just like, if you want to do something where we have drinks, that's fine. Like my friend who was going to come over, I'm like, I can make you drinks and then I'll just drive you home. Like I'm not drinking. Saying, so free, de like, free, free designated driver. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Like it's not that big a deal. Um, But so those are kind of like the, the, like I said, the, criticisms which i find kind of dumb um there is also a criticism saying that someone that might have an actual dependence on alcohol it could be very dangerous for them to embark on dry january without mm -hmm. kind of properly monitoring the situation because they could have withdrawal symptoms they could have shakes it can cause heart issues all of that business and that's obviously if, if that's like kind of a different you know that's a different thing yeah. um 
And then I did like this one part of the article that kind of talks about the younger generations and um, a decline in how much they drink, which I found pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's de- despite what critics say, our culture is becoming more aligned with people who want to drink less. Low ABV cocktails are featured on drink menus. Non-alcoholic aperitifs are the latest in cool drinks. And you can say mocktail without being laughed out of a bar. It's partially because the legalization and de- destigmatization. Destigmatization. Somebody help me. Amy, help me. Destigmatization. Thank you. (laughs) Of (laughs) cannabis have opened the door to a different kind of buzz that in many ways is not as harmful as alcohol. Um, I would also I would also question like how many of us uh, were using alcohol to uh, manage anxiety. Yeah, so just like to to sort of <laughs> raise them a hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you yeah. know how many of us now have professionals <laughs> that can prescribe other things that might be mm-hmm. more successful at doing those things, so we don't need booze. You know, so well, I yeah. Like it's kind of funny. Like so, you saying it's generational too, or not even necessarily generational, but like more. The next part I'm going to talk about is very specifically generational, but yeah. Well, I'll let you. I'll let you say that first, oh, and okay. then I'll add right. commentary. <laughs> okay. So, um, some argue that decreased alcohol consumption among millennials and Gen Z is an act of generational rebellion. <laughs> Young people are looking for ways to find balance among today's global uncertainty and trying to manage high rates of anxiety and other mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's from the uh, Julie Bainbridge, who is the author of a forthcoming book on non-alcoholic cocktails called Good Drinks. Uh, in other words, alcohol itself, a depressant, aggravates aggravates anxiety and depression during a time when most of us are already dealing with more than we can handle. <clears throat> According to a YouGov poll of twenty over 22,000 people, 20% of 25 to 34-year-olds are participating in dry January compared to 14% of people overall. So yeah. it's very hip. what i'm doing yeah i can't wait for the headlines millennials kill alcohol (laughs) industry Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Um, Uh, and i oh i i forgot to include i did look at like what the what effect it has on business and it is true that like bars and stuff see a bit of um downward turn in january but like microbreweries and like local alcohol mm. producers don't really see a drop yeah like they're fine like people are still going and getting those kind of specialty things yeah i think it's more about the experience i think like there's a a lot of conversation that i see happening online right now about third third spaces so like you have your home as your first space and then you have work as a second space and then third space is like a place for community so i think like if you're talking about like a local brewery or like that is a place where you can go and find community like they have like events, they have tastings, like it's more of like an interpersonal like connection as opposed to just like going to a bar, yeah. um, which I think going to a bar used to be that for older generations. Um, but I think yeah, that I don't lot- want to talk to anybody hanging out in a bar. Yeah, but I think, yeah, there's like a different I'll talk. Vibe. I'll talk to people in a cafe. Yeah. And there's huge <laughs> like cafe col- coffee culture and tea yeah. culture. Like, and I think that also comes from that, like, wanting of community. So I think with, like, younger generations, we're seeing that, that there's, like, this really big striving for community and community building and those third spaces. But there's also, too, like, like Kate was saying, like, way greater access to, like, mental health resources and 
um, to support and like we better understand like our own trauma responses and we're not self-medicating as much. So I think like this is a good thing overall as like a society and people who shit all over it should just shut the fuck up. Yeah, like people just who shit life, over it probably it. need a little bit of therapy themselves. Yes, yes. <laughs> And then, I mean, they're yeah, they're acting like it's like when people say that vegans are really annoying because they act like every vegan they've ever met just doesn't shut the <laughs> fuck up about being vegan, which like used to be the case. But most of the time when I meet vegans now, I don't even know they're vegan until I like get yeah. to know them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it like comes up. But like I, it, that's not how people act anymore. Like you need I to think that like reaction is like a generational thing, too. Oh, like I sure. noticed that like <clears throat> if people are just like, oh, I'm I'm making this change in my life for me. Sometimes older generations see that as like attack of like their way of life. Right. Like, oh, right. I didn't do that. So like, what are you saying about me? Mm-hmm. Like, what what does that say about like the choices I've made? It's like, no, this is not. Right. This is not about you. <laughs> this is which I this think is a- you hit. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head in terms of what like in that first part, the kind of what people were complaining about the inadvertently shaming those who continue to indulge. And it's like, OK, but really just because they're not participating, that somehow immediately means they're shaming you. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> right. Right. No, this isn't about you. This yep. is actually not about you at all. <laughs> And I don't care whether you're yeah, drinking and or different, not. Different people in different points in their lives, in different geographical areas with different set of circumstances and situations have different decisions to make. Like, what is the best decision for me is not going to be the best decision for Kate or the best decision for Melissa or the best decision for someone else living halfway around the world. And I think mm-hmm. like the younger, the the kids these days get yeah. that the youngins yeah no yeah. The, the having worked in cafes and worked with working with like really young people like first of all i'm in awe like they're yeah. so smart they're so hardworking. they've taught me like so much just about like the world and like tolerance and just i don't know they're so cool yeah but like yeah they just don't like hey do what's good for you man if you're not hurting anybody they don't really care like yeah. It's like, amazing. as long as you're not being, you know, like racist or whatever, like, yeah. they're cool with it. Like, they give me so much hope for the future. Like, I yeah. that's the corniest, oldest it's shit so I've true. ever said. But like, sidebar, <laughs> sidebar, yes. sidebar. I'm done with my section. So after we're done with this, Amy, you can get on to yours. But. <laughs> OK, so the oldest girl that works at the cafe, she's still a great deal younger than me. But she's the oldest one. She tells me the other day, she goes, oh, you think I know someone that you went to high school with? And I was like, oh. And she said, yeah. And she like said their name. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, we weren't like friends. But like, yeah, I know who she is. And she goes, yeah, that's my mom's girlfriend. (laughs) Oh, Melissa. Yeah. I'm sorry. She was a year ahead Mm -hmm. of me in high school. Mm -hmm. I cut deep. Mm -hmm. And I was just like. And then you're like, <laughs> so cool. You're like, tell me that it's she's so cool. much younger than your mother, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know, well, the- like, what. I know that her, her mom had her young, but mm-hmm. I was still just like, oh, God. Mm. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of my employees at the shop, I like know their moms. All of the employees yeah. at the shop. All of let me rephrase that. All of the employees at the shop. I know their moms. But at least they're their your employees. These are my coworkers. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's the same thing. I mean Well, it is. Well. I mean, it's 
pretty it's much different, the same thing. It's different when you're the owner of the business. I and guess. Your employees are a great deal younger than you. It's a little bit of a different dynamic when you're a fair amount older, but you're just like work buds. You know what I mean? Mm. But anyways, yeah. So that happened the other day. So Amy, Fun. what are we what are we what are you talking about? Uh we're talking about domestic science. <laughs> why you gotta why you gotta make the pukey noise? Because it sounds gross. Oh. I don't want domestic anything. So did you guys take uh did you what what was the name of the class you took in high school? Was Home it economics? Like, oh, okay. They changed it when I was about to take home economics too. Um, well, family and consumer sciences. So I was curious so it, <clears throat> what you guys Because there's took. nothing gendered about home economics. It's the economics of the home. There's right? nothing. What? The, I didn't hear the first part of what you said. Gendered. Oh. Yes, but I think so. Like, this is part of the discussion Although tonight. Now that I'm thinking it's, it's like called the semantics home ec, of that, but language. you're like learning how to cook and shit. That's right. not economics. They, economics does a lot of heavy lifting in that statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She boff. <laughs> yeah. Well, so when I took family and consumer sciences, we learned how to sew, and there was like math with involved in sewing, obviously. We learned yeah. how to cook and there's math involved in cooking, but we also learned how to budget a household. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah, learned yeah. how to make shopping lists. We learned how to like we budgeted. We were given like a imaginary budget for like buying a home and furnishing a home. Mm -hmm. That was like one we of our big projects. And then that, also there was... was like baby caring. Mm -hmm. And we had um, my class was the last class to have hard boiled eggs. The younger kids got bougie robotic babies that recorded if they were dropped. We had robot. We had robo robotic babies. Oh, really? We had a bag of yeah. flour. <laughs> I just watched rewatched the Bob's Burgers episode where Gene gets a bag of flour to be a dad to, and he keeps destroying them, and they act like he's smashed in a, a real baby. It's really yeah. funny. I had a he's bag like, of flour. Ah, I didn't okay, know there was okay. a Bob's Burgers, and you got to hard boil your egg. We had to have like a raw egg. Yeah, isn't the point that it's raw? Yeah. So like, like if what you is break a, it, like it's dead. You know, like we had no because it still cracks. Like if something yeah. bad, if you drop it'll it, it'll still, still crack. Survive. It just doesn't make a big mess. Right. Mm. No, nope. but it but should make a like, baby. A baby would make a big mess. That's Actually, true. it wouldn't, according to the baby that <laughs> smashed its head at my work. Oh, it's fine, I guess. There was no oh. mess. We maybe don't inside know. his head where we couldn't see it. It's the mess is inside. But we boiled. We did the baby thing in for health class. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, we did we did the baby thing for health class, not for home ec. Home ec was just like cooking and sewing. I think there oh. might have been some grocery budgeting. Yeah. Um for and then the baby, we had the fancy, we were the first year that got the fancy crying Ooh. babies. You must have gone to a nice high school, Melissa. Merrimack. Yeah. yeah. My my high school like has had a best asbestos. And like so many leaks that we we couldn't afford to replace the ceiling tiles anymore. So the art teacher's like, we're going to do an art project. We're going to paint over the moldy ceiling tiles. <laughs> and But it became really cool because you could look up and see each right. ceiling tile was painted by different students over and there. And you that could is think cool. that's covering up the mold, mold that is slowly killing us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're like, so what? 
what is that gigantic five gallon tub of kills in the corner? Like, oh, <laughs> okay. I don't think we even had kills. Probably not. Probably not. But yeah, so I, I was curious about that. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about like the semantics of that language, like like home right. economics versus family and consumer sciences is kind of like home cooking versus like domestic science. And like this is the the time period when like all of a sudden we have nutritionists and we have like nutritional science and dietitians and like a whole new field of professions that did not exist before or like the kind of professionalization of roles that were like previously just seen as domestic labor too. So obviously like I'm going to do like a really brief history, really brief like bullet points of like our relationship to cooking food. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously like every single human culture cooks food, um, the human body and brain has just evolved to be dependent on cooked food. So we actually can't survive on like raw food. It's I not. was so excited when I saw this in your notes. I was just like, <laughs> fuck, yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. What the fuck? Because I remember act- this trend in this fad. And I was oh just my like, God. There's still even trends me an like idiot. I'm it's like, part of it's part of the crunchy. Sense. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I just said it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I was, was going to say that whole like phenomenon was like the beginnings of like the cr- crunchy to conservative and alt-right pipeline of like. <laughs> Like that now exists in in the country of the United States, which is bizarre. But that's a whole that's a whole nother episode that we could talk about is weird Christian pseudoscience fad diets yeah, based the on the all, Bible all and meat shit. Diet. Yeah. We could um, talk about breatharians. Yeah. <laughs> but the, like I said, that's a whole that's a whole nother that's episode. Whole other I'm trying thing. to be yeah, better yeah, yeah. about not going down interesting rabbit holes. Like 30 interesting rabbit holes in one episode. Just filing that away for another time. Um, next so next season on next Drunk season. Dish. Yeah. <clears throat> Ooh, we should do a season on like weird fad diets. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah, that's good. It's decided. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Hold us to it because we do everything we say we're going that's to. Right. Yep. <laughs> Okay, so obviously we need to cook food like the act of like cooking food actually releases more um, like nutrients and vitamins that our body needs to absorb in order to survive. It also gives us like more energy for the day. Now you're washing off all the nutrients. (laughs) You're cooking them all away. Yeah, Yeah, if you boil those green beans for 45 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. (laughs) So they're mush. So it's baby food. Um, So that like... I don't know how I'm I'm like really fascinated by like how how do we first do stuff? So like who was the first human to like put food over fire and like just like who was the first human to mm-hmm. like see mold and be like, I'm going to try and eat that. Yeah. Or like who was that fucking weirdo? Or, yeah, yeah. That weirdo that stored milk in a che in a, you know, cow's stomach and then opened it up and it was cheese. And he was like, I'm going to eat this. And you're yeah. like, why? Like, why? <laughs> what compelled you? <laughs> Why were you storing it in there in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we like evolved from this, like, just like trial and error, obviously, to what we have now. Um, And it's not until like the 50s and 60s, the 1950s and 60s that like we really see like all of these domestic science programs and like in uh, high schools. And we see like culinary school enrollments just like exploding. 
and we have like the science of food and nutrition. And then we see like a dip that happens. So this is like post women's suffrage movement. We have this huge explosion. And then we have this dip that happens in the 1970s that kind of correlates with like the women's lib movement. And then like today we have like all of this science of cooking kind of stuff. So like there's a book called uh, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. It just surpassed a couple of years ago as the most reviewed book cookbook on Amazon over the joy of cooking, which is like a staple. And then like during the pandemic, we have obsessions with like sourdough starters and like this like kind of renewal of like the science of home cooking that happens. So um, I want to talk a little bit about like what if cooking is a science or not. And I have a couple quotes that I just wanted to, to read to you guys and see what you thought. Um, so Harold McGee, which sounds like a made up name, but it's not, <laughs> um, wrote a cookbook in 1984, um, on food and cooking, the science and lore of the kitchen. And he wrote that foods like most everything else on earth are a mixtures of different chemical compounds. Um, and then, uh, Mr. Lopez Alts in the food lab wrote the kitchen is perhaps the easiest place for a regular person to practice science every day. And then all the way back in 1866, John Ruskin wrote that the best cooking should be an amalgam of the, quote, the economy of great grandmothers and the science of modern chemists. I like that statement a lot. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that's my favorite, like one of the quotes. And I think that's because it kind of acknowledges the duality that that exists when we talk about home cooking specifically, too. Is that like there's all this generational knowledge that comes about with like home cooking. It's like primarily in um, white Eurocentric like Western culture. It's matriarchal knowledge passed down from like grandmother to mother to daughter about like how to prepare food. And um, and then we have this like one of the things that the suffragette movement did is try and like elevate these domestic roles to this like more professional level in as a way to like gain respect um but it also like it like kind of sterilizes that like generational knowledge in the like the like hard learned practices too that are like handed down from person to person which i find really fascinating so um the women's suffrage movement came about at like a really pivotal point in culinary history which is why it has like such a big impact on this movement from like these domestic home cooks and like this kind of like view of home cooking as like servants or women's work um to being like elevated to this like quote-unquote science so um cookbooks previously until the women's suffrage movement had come about focused on passing down these like tried and true recipes that Mm -hmm. you know were generationally shared um, they shared kitchen basics. They shared like a whole bunch of information about like running a household. So it was like really practical, applicable knowledge. Um, yeah. And they were shared mostly like within specific communities. They're meant as a tool who, for women who maybe didn't have guidance of mothers or grandmothers. Um, so women kind of like on the fringes of society um, or like women within a particular community who wanted to share their knowledge with one another so that they could all grow together as a community too. Um, and they started like as country county fair cookbooks and school fundraiser cookbooks. So they like they were like really finite. They had a really small intended audience. And mm-hmm. society's opinion of cooking begins to morph at this time, too. And we see this like huge division between home cooking and like culinary chefs. 
And chefs are men. Yep. Chefs are men. Cooks are women. Right. Like you have this this dichotomy. Yeah. Sidebar. I just finished the Julia Child show on HBO Max. Um, I've been wanting to watch that. I really love. I really love it. I think they do a really good job. But in it at one point. Um, she goes to like this PBS like awards thing. And is it Betty Friedan, the feminist yes. writer? She's there and they get to talking and Friedan like rips into her. Like they start with a friendly Aww. conversation, but she rips into her that essentially she's like making it worse for women because now women are expected to put these like gourmet meat, like uh, essentially mm-hmm. completely missing the entire point of the French chef. Yeah. Um, and it, of course it's, it's, I think it's like the final episode or something. So it throws Julia into this whole thing, but like right before that too, she's in a French <clears> restaurant <throat> and the chef comes out and is talking to her about how great she is and everything. And then he's like, but not in my kitchen. He's like, mm. only men, only men are allowed in actual kitchens. Yep. Only men are chefs. Like basically being like, you're so cool. You're a celebrity, but like you're. And I find it so weird yeah. that women were expected to care for the family and to cook, especially women in society that like, so not upper, upper class, but like, especially in like the fifties and sixties that were like middle class yeah. had to throw these like dinner parties and stuff and were expected to create this food. But then if they tried to attain a higher level of knowledge as like a chef, they were like, no, you can't do that. And it's yeah. like. That's just baffling to me. I mean, it's not that baffling because humans are awful. Um, <laughs> so I get it. Misogyny. But like, but it, yeah, but it's just like baffling to me. It's like, how could you, in the extreme case of Julia Child, like try Julia Child's food and then be like, women don't belong in a professional kitchen. Yeah. And even like when she well, joined because, culinary because school Because we, too. I'm yeah. sure, can't handle the stress of the kitchen. Mm. We can we can cook the stuff. We just can't With handle. With like six fucking children <laughs> screaming at you. Yeah. yeah. I feel like you know, it's and your husband asking you where everything in the house is. Right. And uh, <laughs> like it's but but we would we would probably get very flustered and mm. um, we'd Our need like lady heads. The, everything it. there is really heavy and big and hot. I mean, I and... would get flustered, but I would get flustered in that <laughs> I mean, home I would environment too. as well. Not, I'm not <laughs> no, trying to like you. downplay what working in a kid like professional kitchen is, but I'm yeah, sure yeah, yeah. that but that's the idea that part it of is it, right? Is, mm-hmm. And even now, there's still way more uh, world-renowned like male chefs than there are female. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which... And you see, like, even like you think of like famous chefs, and it's like. Even within the culinary world, there seems to be specialities that are predominantly male focused and specialities that are predominantly female focused, like pastry, desserts, like things like that, like or baking, like like you see a lot more women being successful. I was I was going to say baking. Yes. Patisserie is men. No, is men. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because it's, it's more structured. It's more. This is how you do it. It's more French. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why. But but yeah, but it's sorry, bizarre. Like it's, it's it is like the you think about like <laughs> there's there is literally no reason like why there should be a difference. Both men and women have hands. Both women, men and women have eyes like, you know, Wait, what I mean? what? There's, like, there's no genetic difference like that would give one sex an advantage over the other in those specific fields. So it's like really baffling to me. It's purely just societal. 
Like it's purely culture driven, um, which is frustrating because I feel like that's really hard to change those like expectations, even though there's no scientific or like data that like supports those expectations. Well, and I think it goes back to where sorry, I just shoved a donut in my mouth. That's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> now we're just where jealous. chefs are scientific. Yes. Right? And home right. cooks are learned behaviors, passed down, more feelings, even though it's still science. It's you're still, still creating. Science. You're still creating reactions. You right. still know when you do X, Y and Z that this is going to happen. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But because men are like math and science focused and women are like English and literature focused. Their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that men are are more suited to that kind of more scientific driven mm-hmm. professional kitchen. And well, I think I was this... say, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you first, Kate. I was going to say, I think that that's the key, too, is when it can become a profession and when it can be monetized and become something that is um you know, has some status to it or has a little bit of renown to it, uh, you know, then all of a sudden all the dudes want to do it. School and teacher, school teacher, women, professor. Right. Men. Yeah. Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think that that's the other, and the other, you know, like if you are the head chef in a restaurant, you're like the CEO of the kitchen, right? Like you're the mm-hmm you're the leader of the kitchen and we couldn't have ladies leading the pack back there. You're in charge of your troops. Exactly. You're leading the soldiers into battle of Mm -hmm. dinner service. And it's, it's really baffling. Like, and I see, so like, as we have this conversation in this episode too, like one of the things that struck me is, and this is something I hold deeply like as a belief, but like the same underpinnings of this misogynistic, like view of the world are the same underpinnings of like white supremacy because Mm. you see this happening all the time with like Eurocentric medicine versus indigenous medicine. Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like the willow bark is what aspirin is made out of like, but it's not widely accepted as like a pain reliever when you have indigenous women steeping willow bark and making a tea out of it. It is widely accepted as a pain reliever when it's put into a pill right? by by a white guy. Like, mm-hmm. so like there's this discounting of indigenous knowledge and this discounting of feminine knowledge that just keeps happening. And it's to serve this like ideology of what what fits, quote unquote, science. Like it's all science, like you said, Melissa, but it's not defined as science. Um. So you have the suffragettes at this time and they're like, they're trying to say, hey, the work that we have been doing in the kitchen, like the domestic labor that we are performing, that is science. Like that is like that is a profession that is at that like elevated level. Um, And you see um, part of it is like pushing society to start accepting and seeing that. But part of it is this kind of like counter response to it too like so all of a sudden like pastry chefs form um like a society um 
like specifically for pastry chefs in 1865. I'm going to butcher saying this in French, so just bear oh. with me. <laughs> <laughs> the Society Culinaire Philanthropique. It's founded. Oh, I think that's, yeah, I think that was good. Yeah. That's you weren't great. confident when you said it, but you're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but so you have this society founded in 1865, and it's specifically for pastry chefs. And I put notes in here, too, because at the same time that this is happening, we have the women's suffrage movement building steam and we have the industrial revolution happening. And these three things are like so closely intertwined. So like this society is formed the same year that Alfred Noble invents dynamite. Fun fact, I didn't know that the Nobel Prizes were named after a dude who invented a weapon of war. Mm. <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> You know, I don't even think of dynamite as like a weapon of war. I think of it as like a, a tool. construction. Yeah. 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 Which I yeah. mean, I'm sure was not its original purpose, but that's like what I think of it yeah. as. But anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, blow shit up. Yeah. And then uh, a little more than 10 years later, 1879, the first cooking school opens in the United States, the Boston Cooking School. Um, and mm. this cooking school is open primarily for women Again, we have the Industrial Revolution going on. This is the same year that Thomas Edison invents the light bulb to give context, like historical context. Mm. But you have all Thomas these women Edison. suddenly who are not living in the same household that their mother and their grandmother lives or the same community. Right. They've gone to more urban areas. So you have it, whether it's in like England or in the United States, you have these women flocking to urban areas and starting to earn a living wage for the first time. Um, working outside of the home so this school is founded at the same time that these women are separated from that generational knowledge and then 1896 we have the first widely published cookbook that isn't just meant for like women in your community the fanny farmer cookbook i have a copy of this is um, that what this is i just found this i'm yes. sharing it <laughs> because i was looking to see if the boston cooking school was like still a thing Oh. Uh, or if it like changed names or whatever. And I just happened to find this. And I was like, oh, the girls would think that this is cool. The original yeah. Boston Cooking School cookbook from 1896. Yeah. It's only so the, uh, $6.79 it's published on by Thrift Books. Farmer. She has like a bunch yeah. of other cookbooks that come out. But she's like an alum from the school. And uh, cool. 1929, we have the American Culinary Federation gets formed in the United States. And this is the the organization that's credited with raising the position of head chef, like within a restaurant or a household, to from a servant status to a professional status, which is like a really important distinction. So we have the Industrial Revolution going on. It's moving all these young people away from home. It's empowering women to enter the workforce. And as we know from the episode where we talked about graham crackers, there's a lack of quality food in these more urban areas. Um, so a lot of like the um, bakers like couldn't keep up with the sudden increase of demand. So there's like they're adding things like sawdust to the flour mix and it's mm -hmm. like creating this really horrible low quality food that's available in these cities. So women are still taking up the brunt of this domestic labor in addition to working now, they're going to culinary schools because they've been separated from that generational knowledge. So they have more want, more money, more choice, more agency, but also more responsibilities, more expectations. Um, 
and I put I put a little disclaimer in my notes here and we've already kind of talked about this, but this like elevation of domestic labor that's happening is a, is a good thing because like we're noticing the labor that is being put in and we're acknowledging like that it is labor. It's important. It's essential. But it also adds an uh, an air of legitimacy to white supremacy at the same time, too. So this whole idea of like the difference between, again, like we're seeing the Industrial Revolution, the end of slavery, women's suffrage movement, too. So how do we differentiate white people doing these jobs from black people doing these jobs? I was going to say in households that have cooks, like cooks of color if they elevate the position of the person in the household that is in charge of the meals to like a chef to did that position change to like white men yeah it became in vogue so like you have you also have like a slew of like um all of a sudden like a finer american households importing import i'm using that um like white importing a human (laughs) <laughs> yeah. White European chefs that are trained yeah. in schools in France or schools in London or schools in Italy. Like, that, well, it's like, like a have... status social thing. Like, oh, did you hear, you know, whatever the Smiths got Jean-Pierre yep. Lefou or whatever to come for yes. his <laughs> And that would that would dictate everything in a household, too. Like that would dictate what kind of food you would be serving your guests, what kind of food your family would be eating on the regular, what kind of ingredients you'd be using, <clears throat> like even like what the <clears throat> place setting on your table would look like, the kind of cutlery you'd be using. It would change entirely based on like the kind of cuisine that your household was serving regularly. Yeah. And that would be based on your chef's training. So, like, it was a status symbol entirely, like, who your chef was and, like, what school, what culinary school they went to. So so elevating it, instead of elevating women and people of color when they elevate that position, it actually creates this huge division and this huge rift between there is now a difference between a woman who cooks for her family and a hired professional chef. There is now a difference between a man of color who is hired as a cook for a household versus a French trained um, chef. Even though the the man of color or the person of color who's cooking for a household is probably operating with a significant amount of generational knowledge um, uh, that has been passed down, you know, maybe like not even necessarily within just their family, but within the household too, like when we were talking about the founding fathers in earlier episodes too, like they're the enslaved people who cooked for their households put together cookbooks. Yeah. And like that cookbook stayed with the households. Like, so not just within their families, but also within their households, the, that amount of knowledge, there's a huge shift away from it. It's no longer in vogue. It's no longer popular. It's not a status symbol. So we're going to throw that away in favor of this more like scientific approach. Right. And we have these two figures, these two suffragette women who kind of emerge at the same time. One of them we've talked about before, um, Alice Stockholm, Dr. Alice Stockholm. Um, we talked about her when we talked about the Carolina cake episode where it was like uh, on sex and like excess. And she's the uh, gynecologist who really loved rich foods and was pro masturbation, <laughs> if you remember correctly. And so real control. quick. Real quick, yeah. I noticed this in the outline. You called her Alice Stockholm. Mm-hmm. It's Stockholm. Yeah, I spelled, yeah, I spelled, spelled her name wrong. Or Stockham or whatever. Stockham. Yeah, I'm not entirely Stockham. sure how to pronounce it. I think it's Stockham. 
but I just wanted to point that out that that's her. I only know because you asked me to put the recipe in there and I fixed it. Yes. When I put the recipe in there. So I'm fixing it now. I just want to make sure. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Continue. So she's she's one of the people who's trying to elevate these domestic like labors as uh, viewed as science. Right. And she's doing this as part of the suffragette movement. So she contributes multiple recipes to the cookbook. And one of them is the one that we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, We also have this other figure from this time period, too. Um, You're probably going to recognize her last name, Ella Eaton Kellogg. And Mm. yeah, she's married to that Kellogg. She's married to that Kellogg. (laughs) She's married to him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay. She's also pro-suffrage. She's college educated. She is a dietitian and a food scientist. Like she, so she was like very well accomplished on her own accord before she meets her her future husband. Um, And she just like continues learning. She's also vegetarian. um, And she founded the School of Home Economics, which later becomes Battle Creek College, and then it changes its name to something else uh, in the early 1900s. And I cannot remember what it is. I didn't put in my notes. Um, she also publishes a book called The Science in the Kitchen in 1898, and she's like the exact opposite of Dr. Stockham. Um, she's anti-sex, as all the Kellogg's were. Right, um, yeah. So much so that, so like I knew that they had 12 children together. None of them were biological children. Oh, okay. I was going to say. They were <laughs> all adopted. So, I mean, well, that's great. That's great. I think that it's they great that they adopted children. But a home. what's the what? It, it, especially back then, the main point of marriage was to have a partner and have children. Yeah, and they're so, so like, why were they ma- Why were it makes they me question. Like, because like if I if they weren't that anti-sex, I'd be like, oh, maybe they couldn't have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Given the time period, right? Like, obviously, modern couple gets married. They don't have kids. It's none of my fucking business. But like a couple right. in and the 1800s. Still might, gets that married. still might be the case that they maybe couldn't have children. Right. Um, but they're whatever. so anti-sex that it makes me suspicious that like they never did anything. I shouldn't care. It's people who were alive like 200 years ago. Yeah, maybe they were both asexual. Maybe. And good on them for finding each other. Yeah, that's great. D- please don't try and get everybody else to live right. your, your lifestyle. Eat your, eat your graham crackers. <laughs> eat yeah. your, eat like, your crunchy flakes. If that is that is like where you feel like that's great, but don't start a cult, a religious anti-sex cult. So FYI, Boston College turned into Simmons University in 1902. And then uh, in 2018, Simmons college became simmons university so it still exists but it's not called boston call cooking college or whatever anymore ah very cool i didn't know that became simmons that's really neat like but so thank it you for doing my research for me <laughs> but it's not a cooking school yeah so it just so i would it say just that became it does a... not exist anymore yeah Okay, but it, so like even like the school of home economics that um, Ella Eaton Kellogg founded. Obviously, its focus was on like cooking and domestic labors at first, and then like by the time it becomes uh, Battle Creek College um, in like the eighteen nineties, um, it's just like standard college. Like it's just like normal college offerings. It's not a specific focus on home economics anymore. 
Um, but we have these two suffrage suffragette women at the time who both are trying to elevate um, these domestic labors into like to be viewed by society as a science. Um, and both of them, unfortunately, don't have a great track record with like their views on things like eugenics. Mm. Um, what? What? <laughs> um, so like, although they're doing this with the thought that like this will help elevate the status of women within society, they're really focusing on white women. Um, and they're also using it as like a differentiator to be like, this is what white people are capable of. And this is what people who are not white are capable of, mm. um, which is not good, obviously. Mm. So there's this like constant dichotomy that's happening within the women's suffrage movement and with food, weirdly enough, where like it's used as this differentiator between like class and race and sex. And it's just really, really, really messy. Um these two women, though, do change how recipes are like kind of like published in cookbooks. So like we've talked about this before, how like sometimes recipes in like old tiny cookbooks are like like they don't give like exact measurements. It's just like a part to part. So, you know, which kind of happens when you're talking about like scientific experiments or like chemical reactions, like one part this to two parts that. Um, but recipes start to get more specific because they're not for a small community audience anymore. They're for a more general audience. And that like baseline knowledge has changed so much. So like, again, women are living in more urban areas separated from that generational knowledge. So recipes become more accurate and specific. And then also we start to see little notes on nutrition, which there is one in tonight's recipe, too. Um, so like little bits of commentary on what nutritional value or the reasoning behind specific ingredients might be, too. So I think it's really interesting that that these women were able to uh, move the needle in some way, although in bad ways for other <laughs> for other people um but it did change the way that we share recipes as a culture which i think is really fascinating yeah very cool. uh kate would you like to share the recipe that we have tonight from dr stockham i sure would <laughs> every time i say stockham i want to say like sockham robots like yeah <laughs> <laughs> Stockham, Stockham robots. Yeah. Um, I will say that this, when I looked at this recipe earlier, I was like, oh, okay. This is like the first one that I'm just like, all right, okay, I could, I could do this. We should have this. Yeah. It sounds, it actually sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the recipe is for rhubarb toast. Uh, and it's, again, it's pretty simple. You take one pint of water a half a cup of sugar. And when boiling, you put two pounds of rhubarb, which has been cut into small pieces. Uh, you stew until done. When cold, Just pour until over done. A, Don't know what that means. Just do it till they're done. Till it's done. Till it's done. <laughs> yeah, but Just, there's actual measurements. They say a pint of water, a, a half a pint of water, sugar. And a half a cup. Yeah, absolutely. Two um, pounds and two of pounds. rhubarb. Yeah, that's a lot of rhubarb. That's a that's lot, a of, lot rhubarb. of rhubarb. <laughs> um, Stew until done. When cold, pour over a platter of hot toasted graham bread. Uh, Doesn't tell you how much toast. A platter. A platter. <laughs> what, how much is that? Like a platter. <laughs> what is graham bread? <laughs> it's it's um, made with graham flour. So like, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So that's what graham crackers are made out of. It's meant to be like kind of like tasteless and fa fla and flavorless. Like 
and it's like really it's got a lot of fiber mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like ezekiel it's good for bread your, yeah it's good for your digestive system so this like like um miss kellogg there ella eaton kellogg would really love it because she would bread is supposed to taste like ass essentially but she wouldn't like what dr she Stockin's would not doing. know what, no, what ass no, tastes the like rhubarb, the rhubarb is like <laughs> good point Melissa. that's also true that's also true. Uh, no, the rhubarb is like the sexy side of yeah. the gram of the gram bread. Um, and you put a little bit of butter on the gram bread first. So mm. hot toasted gram, hot toasted gram bread having a little butter on it. Um, this is an excellent breakfast dish, she says. Uh, and as the toast absorbs the particular rhubarb flavor, it can be eaten by those who actually dislike it. I'm not sure whether she's saying who dislike the I think that's just like rhubarb the rhubarb I, I think that she could be the toast the bread I, I, yeah, I was I think just thinking because I was thinking of Greg because Greg doesn't like rhubarb no yeah, I think the, she's saying that the rhubarb makes the toast better and this oh. is like reading I read this recipe a couple times now um it's jelly it's jelly on yeah, toast. No, it's, it's jam jelly. on toast for yeah, sure it's jam on toast I was just yeah. gonna say that yeah all it is uh-huh um she also says that gooseberries or tart apples can be prepared in the same way. Uh, and note, note, see note, um, never use white bread for toast. When bread of the unbolted or entire wheat flour can be had, uh, the latter become, never becomes doughy and it's much better flavored besides being more nutritious. So like if you used white bread, uh, it would be doughy when it had it would get mm-hmm. soggy jam on it i am um, like i like white bread but for toast you you stuff with more substance is better mm-hmm. then you yeah. can really slather mm-hmm. on the toppings yeah um well yeah like if you can put like rye if you can if you have like rye toast and then you put like something on it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's good good stuff right there uh so yeah for me this is the first recipe that we've talked about <laughs> where i don't have to kill a turtle uh and (laughs) that's not one of them was just like tomato soup yeah that was awful too that was just like tomatoes and milk boil it and put some salt in it like ew (laughs) so this one yeah like mm, no and just just the idea of it just no good have you guys seen the clip of the of the woman who was on the oprah show who like supposedly could make the best chicken like cook the best chicken ever oh my yeah. god it's such a funny clip sidebar sorry oh yeah but, yeah um so like oprah like introduces her her producers had like found this woman or whatever it's a white lady it's important for the story mm, okay <laughs> so she like serves it up she like talks through to the audience how she makes it and then she like hands a finished you know they do on like cooking shows they're like this is how you do it and then oh there's one already ready um so she like hands oprah a plate and Oprah starts like cutting into it and she puts a piece in her mouth and her face just is like, what am I eating? And she goes, so there's, mm, I mean, this is, it's good. It's moist. It's real. Mm, but there's no salt, no pepper, no, no seasoning. <laughs> and it was just like, it was just like chicken cooked in butter. It was there like was the like, chicken that you brought for taco night that one time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> just like bland lifeless yeah. just just oh, white meat no. just plain yeah. chicken 
That's embarrassing. <laughs> but Ugh. Oprah's face is the best in it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, that's when I'm how really did the lady end up that on clip. the show? Like, wh- I don't know. She probably like had some. Was like, it old timey Oprah show? Was it like old Oprah? It wasn't like old when Oprah. she first first started, where she was just like no, not Oprah. Oh, she was. No, it was she was Oprah. Oprah. It was mm. the you have a car, you have a car, you have a car. Oh, stage mm. of right. Oprah show. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, this Capital is Oprah. Capital me. <laughs> um. Yeah. So there, there we go. <laughs> but yeah, this is now. I'm I just looking at. I'm looking at the women's suffrage cookbook and uh, there's a recipe in here called mother's buns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a long one. There's some, there's some really off color recipes in there too. There's one called hymen cake. One cup of yeast. Kate's face. Like I know that they mean fresh yeast. One cup, mm-hmm. I th- but still hymen cake. Mm-hmm. I'm in breakfast and tea cakes. Is it under breakfast and tea cakes? I can't remember. I need to find my book. I've, I've Water lost puffs. <coughs> but I like Kate toast. that the first recipe you're like, I could eat is is jam on toast. Well, yeah. yeah. The rest of them have been <laughs> terrible. We've had some awful recipes. Yeah, they've been bad. They've like, been bad. real bad. <laughs> like scary. Like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. But also, no. I would love gooseberry jam. That's yeah, I never gooseberry thought about gooseberry jam. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So I say we make this with gooseberries. Okay. Chocolate blanc mange. Sounds white, good to me. Chocolate white. Eat. But we need to find graham toast. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I, don't I don't know if we can find that. We might have to have whole wheat toast instead. It says yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Entire wheat flour is fine. It's I feel good, like it's I'm in hymen, hymen cake territory, but I, I'm not seeing it. Hymen I'm not cake, sure what page it's on. Hymen cake. <laughs> Mother's election cake. <laughs> Have you guys ever had election cake? Mm-mm. No. Oh, no. It's, I made it once. Um, the, I made it when Barack Obama was running for president the first time. And it was good. Back when yeah. we had hope. Yeah. It was a nice way to celebrate. I guess people used to like make election cakes all the time to like celebrate elections and democracy. And God, I hate this American book. imperialism, mm. I guess. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm. well, yeah. Yay. What is I in an election cake? <laughs> I get an up. election cake, not erection cake. No, I said election. She said oh, election. <laughs> I mean, I mean, having an erection cake when Barack Obama was first elected, I could see that too. It's a different I'm kind of party here for that. But all right, yeah, tell us what's an election cake, and then we'll wrap up. <laughs> well, I think that's going to be in another episode, isn't it? Oh, is it? I don't know. You don't, don't have remember. any recipes picked out for the rest of the episodes. We I only know, have I one. I think on there's that. one for next one. Uh, oh yeah, you're right. There is. It's yeah, one the more. final three episodes of the season that we don't have any. One of them's um, election cake, so I can't talk about it right now. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, God. did I not right. mention that this Dude. is the first time I've done? Done. Will will the dishes? <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for the next episode when the dishes. 
will actually talk about. Oh, we got we got to wrap this up. I didn't go <laughs> off the reels until now. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, We're Amy's like drinking for the half. first we time in a while. We must be off the somewhat wet. Yeah, I said Amy's drinking <laughs> for the first time in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do I what do what do I say? Oh yeah. Thank you everyone for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> so raspy. <laughs> Where's your paperwork? <laughs> Thank you for listening to Drunk Dish. For recipes and more, please visit drunkdish.com. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Drunk Dish Pod and Instagram at Drunk Dish. And again, thanks for listening. Bye.